with our Simon Dong reading group. We're continuing with the last couple sections of Individuation Volume 2. Uh, so we're on the text Allegmatics. Um, and uh, so that we, we started this last time, uh, and we, I think, should finish it today. Um, so Allegmatics is uh, Simon Dong's invented term for um, his, his idea of a science of operation. So he takes it that science in its sort of uh, general usage, it, you know, when we talk about um, astronomy or physics or biology or whatever, these are all sciences of structure. Uh, so they're about what kinds of things there are, what you know, how things are uh, constructed or or made up, um, or what they're made of. Um, and he takes it that this is only sort of one half of the uh, of what science could be or of what science should be. So he thinks there should be um, another science or another kind of science which would be a science of operations um and he takes it that cybernetics is sort of the first step towards this kind of science of operations so it's um cybernetics is not um a science of a particular kind of entity a, a kind of structure it's not a science of living beings or of technical objects or whatever it's a science that looks at uh, various forms of operation uh and so and um, in particular, it focuses on the operation, uh, the, the group of operations or the set of operations that um, that is characterized by feedback. Um, so um, where you have some sort of uh, operation uh, and then the result of that operation uh, feeds back into the operating of that operation itself. So um, the, the sort of stock example that is often used is a thermostat. So you have a thermostat, you set it to a certain temperature, and then if the temperature falls below that, uh, if the temperature in the room falls below the, the temperature that you've set on your thermostat, it turns on a heater, and then the heater heats up the room uh, above the temperature of the, that you set on the thermostat, and then the thermostat shuts off the heater. Um, so the action, the operation of the, the thermostat to turn on the heater changes the temperature, which uh, has the effect of um, removing the condition that um, that uh, triggered the action in the first place. So this is a, a, an example of a feedback operation, a, a negative feedback operation. You can also have positive feedback operations. Um, and so Simon Don, um, as we'll see, I think later in this text, he, he thinks that cybernetics is um, sort of too limited in the sense that it focuses on this feedback operation and not on uh it doesn't sort of have a general concept of operations uh or it doesn't um look at other types of operations that are not structured in this feedback way um but he he does think it's a it's a sort of a first step towards this uh science of operations and and so this is what allegmatics is is that that science of operations that um would be a, a more general form of what cybernetics has started doing uh, and then we also saw in the the little bit that we read um, how um, Simon Don uh, sees this uh, the relationship between si um, structure and operation, uh, and he takes the example of the cogito in Descartes. Um, so the cogito uh, um, has these sort of two sides in the sense that it's uh, on the one hand it's an operation, it's something that um, the mind does. Um, but uh, then uh, the other aspect or the other side of the cogito is that it, uh, it's a sort of entity. It has a certain structure. Uh, and we can connect this to um, some of the content in volume two that we 
uh, of the, uh, or sorry, volume one of individuation, um, where he talks about the cogito and he talks about um, uh, doubting doubt and doubted doubt, um, these sort of two sides of the intellectual operation of doubt. Um, so in the cogito, you have this act of uh, thinking I exist, um, and this act of thinking is immediately um, sort of transformed into uh, an object of thought. So you have this act, I exist, uh, this act of thinking, I exist, um, which is um, true whenever I think it. Um, but uh, as soon as I stop thinking it, or if I think of something else, uh, and then I sort of recall my past act of thinking, I exist, then that that um, thought is now an object of thought. Uh, it's not it's not my thinking itself. It's something that I'm thinking about. Uh, and then now it's something that can sort of be called into doubt. I can um, I can ask, you know, is it the case that I just think that I um, had this thought five minutes ago and, uh, you know, I'm subject to illusion because of the evil genius or evil demon that, uh, you know, is making me think that I that I had the thought I exist um, five minutes ago. Uh, so. So the this sort of passage from the act to the um, or from the operation to the structure, uh, from this act of thinking to the um, entity that is a thought. Uh, this is sort of the the type of relationship that Simon Don sees between um, operation and structure in general. And so the cogito is a sort of instance of this um, duality of operation and structure. Okay, so let's um, continue with the text. Uh, so we were on page 664 of the PDF. Um, so I will read the next uh, page or so, and then we'll discuss. Postulate of equivalence. An operation is equivalent with an operation, or an operation is equivalent with a structure when they each involve a transoperative rapport or a rapport of conversion with a third operation or structure. Definition. Analogy is a transoperative equivalence. Definition. Modulation and demodulation are equivalences of operation and structure. Modulation is the transformation of an energy into structure, and demodulation is the transformation of a structure into energy. In that case, the structure is a signal. We cannot determine in advance if the relation between two operations passes through the intermediary of a structure, or if this relation is direct but supposes a structure of putting into relation. Nevertheless, according to the postulate we have posited, Analogy and the analogical act would be different from modulation, which puts an operation and a structure into relation. We will suppose that the relation of modulation defines the application of a structure to an operation through the intermediary of a state that is the metaxu or middle ground between the operation and the structure, i.e. energy. In modulation, we must distinguish between the veritable structure, which is the structure of the signal or form, and the structure that puts form and energy into relation. The operation is this putting into relation, or rather a condition of this putting into relation. For the putting into relation of an operation and a structure is an act which supposes operation as energy and structure by way of form, which is also called signal. The analogical act is the putting into relation of two operations, whether directly or by way of structures, while the act of modulation is the putting into relation of the operation and the structure through an active ensemble called the modulator. All operations are aspects of the act of modulation or of the analogical act, or they are combinations of the act of modulation and the analogical act. Uh, I'll stop here because we have a section heading. Um, so yeah, this bit is fairly dense. Um, so we can maybe start um, by going back to um, some of the definitions that he introduced um, in, in the last bit that we read last time. So he talks about um, 
the different types of sort of constructions you can build in terms of um, relationships between operations and structures. Uh, so you can have um, uh, you can have a, a relationship of an operation to an operation, uh, which he calls a transoperative operation. Uh, uh, sorry, a transoperative um, rapport or relationship. Um, and then you can also have a, uh, a rapport between uh, an operation and a structure, which is what he calls a conversion. Um, and he, on the basis of this, um, of these two definitions or these two concepts, he um, introduces what he calls here the postulate of equivalence. So it, it's the idea that um, um, there is a sort of um, equivalence of uh, two operations with each other, or um, of uh, of uh, an operation and a structure. So either you can either have an operation as equivalent to an operation, or you can have an operation is equivalent to a structure. Um, and this is the case when there's a um, a rapport to a third operation or structure. Uh, so he he leaves this uh, condition, I think, a little bit vague, um, but I think the idea um, is sort of that you can um, you can pass from uh, so if you if you have an operation A and an operation B, for example, and you want to say these two operations are equivalent, um, to do that you have to look at a third operation C and show that. Um, you can sort of go in any direction between them. Uh, so this is actually, um, if uh, uh, anyone is familiar with category theory, this is a sort of a commutative diagram type of operation. So you, you, the idea is if you go from A to B and B to C, it's the same thing as going from A to C. Those um, uh, composed operations are the same as the, the composite operation. Um, I think that's the type of uh, relationship that he has in mind here, um, so that you can um, this third um, third operation that you have to use to compare the uh, the two uh, initial operations is um, uh, has to do with the commutativity of that uh, relationship between the operations. Uh, so this is the the postulate of equivalence, uh, and then he. Um, on the basis of, of this postulate, he gives uh, a definition of analogy. Um, he says it's a transoperative equivalence. So this would be an equivalence between um, between operations. Um, so you have uh, an operation A and operation B are equivalent. So there's a, another operation C such that they all sort of line up properly in the way that you would expect. Um, and that's what analogy is. Uh, and so this is an important um, suggestion because, as we saw in Volume One, um, analogy is one of the key concepts of Simondon's whole um, sort of uh, philosophical framework. Um, he he um, describes transduction, um, the transductive method, as what is valid about analogy. Um, so it, it's um, sort of stripping away the uh, in, invalid aspects of analogy and, and sticking to what is valid about analogy. Uh, and so um, analogy is uh, a key concept for Simondon. And here he's trying to give this uh, very abstract, um, I guess, sort of structural definition of what analogy is. So it's uh, an equivalence between, um, between operations. Uh, and then he also goes on to talk about modulation and demodulation. Um, so these are um, sort of inverse 
uh, operation, they're inverse equivalences to each other. So an, a modulation is um, an equivalence of operation and structure. Um, and the demodulation is is likewise an equivalence, but in the opposite direction. Uh, so um, it has to do, so modulation in the sort of general sense of the term has to do with um, if you have uh, like a, um, a signal of some kind, like a, a radio wave, um, you, you can modulate that signal by um, imposing some sort of uh, variation on the signal uh, so it can be frequency modulation or amplitude modulation are the two um, sort of standard forms in uh, radio transmission. Um, so you you have uh, a radio wave that has a certain frequency, and then you have uh, a modulation that varies that frequency um, in such a way that it transmits information. Um, and so this uh, this is sort of um, and then at the the receiver end, there's some sort of um, apparatus that can receive the the signal, the, the modulation of the radio wave, and transform that into uh, a sound output, uh, which is, again, just a modulation of uh, waves in the air. Um, so uh, modulation is um, imposing a sort of structure onto um, something, uh, uh, another sort of uh, stream of energy or um, a pattern imposing a pattern on some sort of energetic um, transmission, uh, and so this is uh, one form of equivalence of operation and structure. Um, and then uh, the opposite one would be a demodulation. So if you start from a modulated signal and then transform it um, into something um, that is uh, is not modulated, so you you take a, a radio wave with its modulation and then you turn it back into uh, just a, a plain radio wave that is not um, modulated. So that would be a demodulation. Uh, and so, um, um, yeah, so these are the, the sort of two opposite directions you can go between uh, an operation and a structure. Uh, so those are sort of the um, the sets of concepts that Simondon is developing here. So he's trying to give a very abstract um, um, characterization of some of the central concepts that he had already used in volume one of this work. Oh, I have I have questions. Uh, the very first one is like um, under the title of Alamatics. Um, does this show like the the how do I say more theoretical? I mean, the specific explanation of the process of individuation, like. Uh, thinking about psychic individuation, like and uh, collective individuation, we don't know exactly what kind of a process is like. I mean, in terms of transduction or something, something like that. And then through uh, introdu introducing the idea of analogy or modulation and demodulation and so on and so on, uh, Simone is trying to more visualize, like or uh, or specify, elaborate, like uh, the process. And that is the first question, and then. The second one is like uh, it, at the end of the your reading. Um, is there any difference between structure, the vertical structure, and then uh, which is the structure of the signal or form? So, is there any difference between structure and form? And and then the final question is like thinking thinking the whole thing. Like then, um, as far as I understand, allegomatic is the concept like. Simon is trying to explain, like the the at the end of the day, like the process of individuation, which I try to understand, the, the like the process of uh, virtual potential 
how to actualize virtual potential. Um, and if that is right, then uh, the um, automatics, uh, the whole thing is, is that like trying to make everything similar, like, I mean, going, I mean, trying to find something overlap if by doing that, like, uh, uh, to make up the, I mean, to trans transform, I mean, transfer or transmit, whatever, and then to structure, to energy, energy structure, the key point is that to trying to find that something similar and not that uh, different. That, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's a lot of, um, a lot of different points in, uh, in your questions there. Um, maybe I'll start with, um, sort of explaining how I, what relationship I see between this text and individuation volume one or the individuation book itself. Um, because I think in this text, he's not so much looking at individuation as such. Um, he's, I think, trying to go um, to, I guess, a, a higher level of abstraction. Um, so in individuation, he looks at, um, particular models, I guess, of, of individuation or, or particular instances of individuation, uh, you know, physical, vital, psychical, et cetera. Um, and then he, he sort of abstracts um, a, a schema of, you know, what individuation is from each of these uh, forms of individuation. Whereas here, I think he's um, taking that sort of schema of individuation um, as, a, as a starting point and then trying to um, abstract from from that schema uh, itself and get to a, a higher level of abstraction. So we're we're not even um, we're not even thinking about specific kinds of individuation anymore. We're looking at um, the, these very general ontological um, principles, I guess you can say, like structure and operation as such. Um, and what is the what are the kinds of relationships that can um, holds between structures and operations, and we're not even um, thinking yet about um, you know wh which uh, which specific structures or which specific operations might um, sort of instantiate these kinds of relationships. So I think I mean I think the the overall strategy is is at some point we need to sort of redescend to concrete um, uh, instances, but the idea is that we um, sort of ascends to this very abstract um, sort of level of discourse. And then that allows us to sort of transform our understanding of the more concrete level of discourse that we found in individuation. Uh, so I think that's the, the sort of overall strategy of this text. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it's, not, um, it's not dealing specifically with individuation um, anymore. It's it's dealing with these very abstract concepts of operation and structure. Uh, so this text, I think, is more um, ontological than um, most of individuation uh, volume one was. It's uh, it's at a uh, a level of um, much higher abstraction uh, and. Yeah, so that it, it does make it um, in some ways more difficult to follow, but um, it's also more simple in a sense. Each of these principles is, is one uh, sort of simple principle that is being put into relation with other principles. And we have to sort of grasp it in its simplicity and not um, sort of import other content into it than, uh, than what he's introducing in, in his definitions here. Um, 
yeah, so I don't think that exactly answers your questions, but I think that's sort of um, um, how I see the relationship between this text and uh, individuation. Uh, so this text is sort of like, you know, well, maybe to reverse the metaphor. So is you can think of it as sort of ascending um, into a higher level of abstraction, or you can, you can think of it as sort of digging below the foundations of uh, volume one as well. Uh, so either ascending or descending, depending on which sort of order of uh, the metaphor you want to use, but um, uh, in either direction, it's sort of going beyond the content of volume one and um, uh, trying to um, provide a, a sort of explanatory framework that will set that content of volume one into a different context. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That that's good explanation. Thank you. Then, then uh, just like going back to the last question, then the the purpose is like here like analogy and holding uh, the idea is like aims to get a similar like a analogical or finding something overlapped between things that that's the like the core idea of this process um yeah i'm not sure if similar is exactly the right word because similar um when we talk about similarity we're we're thinking of say that if we want to say that um i don't know dogs and wolves are similar, then we would say that, um, you know, dogs have properties A, B, C, D, and wolves have properties A, B, C, E. Um, and so they share, there's like a, a shared set of, uh, of properties that they all have together, that they have in common. Um, um, and so I think, I think he would want to separate what he's doing from sort of a, um, uh, a search for similarities or, or resemblances. Um, and yeah, so as Angus points out that um, he does distinguish analogy from resemblance uh, later on in this text. Um, oh. And I think analogy um, in contrast to similarity or, or resemblance is not about um, shared properties, but it's a sort of shared structure of operations and structures. Um, so um, analogy um, has to do with, uh, so within an entity, um, there's uh, some sort of um, uh, sort of complex network of uh, operations and structures that make up what that entity is. Uh, and then we can um, sort of mm, take that complex network and um, sort of map it onto the complex network that makes up another entity um, and sort of um, compare those two structures. Uh, and so it's that operation that constitutes analogy. Um, so you're not just looking at the properties of objects, you're looking at the structures that make up the, the being of those objects, um, the structures and operations, I should say. Um, and, and so analogy is a more abstract um, operation than just sort of comparing two entities and seeing what they have in common. Um, uh, and it's, so it's more abstract and it's also more, um, uh, it requires more intellectual activity. Um, so it's not just um, a sort of passive uh, recognition that, you know, property A is common to dogs and wolves, um, but you actually have to look at, you know, what is the structure of a dog? Um, you know, how is it, what sort of operations and structures make up the being of a dog? Um, and then uh, see if you can make an analogy with, um, you know, it might be something that is not similar to a dog at all. It might be a uh, uh, a car or um, something like that, you might find some sort of analogy with something um, very different from a dog. Uh, and so um, 
yeah, analogy is more abstract and it requires more um, sort of intellectual activity than uh, sort of um, recognizing resemblances. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, one thing that I noticed when I reread this earlier today is that it, it sort of seems like in the beginning he the focus is on operation. Um, I know that also from the beginning, operation is sort of inseparable from structure, but at least the the idea of the transoperative is, I think, a, a comparison of operations. And then a little bit later on, he'll say something like, you know, this theory of knowledge presupposes an ontology, and this ontology is that there's no difference between what something is and what it does, um, and that it would be difficult to know if there was a combination of operation and structure. But then he goes on to sort of denigrate Bergson for only thinking operation. And so I'm just trying to figure out, or I want to, I guess, figure out as we go through this, um, what the proper emphasis on operation is and why he sometimes seems to say that, sometimes seems to sort of emphasize operation to the exclusion of structure and sometimes seems to say that the knowledge of both is needed. Yeah, I think that's a good question um, to sort of keep in mind as we read through this text. Um, so I, I won't sort of give a, um, a complete answer, I don't think, at this point. But um, one thing I would say is that I think um, the sort of emphasis on operation that we see at the beginning of the text is because for Simon Don, um, he thinks that operation has only just started to be recognized by science in the field of cybernetics. Uh, so he thinks that science, as it's developed since, uh, say, Galileo, has been focused on structures. Um, and has sort of neglected operations. And so he wants to sort of, um, uh, you know, rebalance uh, science so that it would um, um, turn, its, turn its attention to operations instead. So you need to sort of focus more attention on operations. But then he ultimately doesn't want to um, see operations as something, uh, you know, completely disjoint from structures. And, and so he, he is going to criticize Bergson for um, introducing this kind of dualism between operations and structures. Uh, and so he wants to have, um, so the, the cogito um, that I talked about in, in the introduction uh, is sort of his model for this sort of immediate convertibility between operations and structures, that there's never, there's never an operation without a structure or a structure without an operation. They're always sort of um, uh, immediately bound up with each other. Um, and, and so it's this, um, sort of uh, connection between the two, or not even connection, but um, uh, immediate um, bindingness, I guess, or bond uh, between um, uh, operation and structure that Simon Don wants to, you know, take as the the sort of uh, fundamental principle, uh, and then so the the focus on operation is sort of provisional in the sense that it. It's sort of redressing the the balance of um, of you know the the focus of attention uh, by science um, you know in the last couple hundred years. Uh, but the ultimate goal is to have a um, a sort of unified science that would be a science of operation and structure together. Thank you. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. I can read from the next section if we're ready to move on. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good idea. So yeah, you can read. Um, yeah, a page or so. Theory of the analogical act. The analogical act is the relating of two operations. 
Plato used the analogical act as a logical method of inductive discovery. Paradigmatism consists in transporting an operation of thought, an operation which is first tested on a particular known structure, for example, that which serves in the sophist to define the angler, and imparted to another particular unknown structure and object of research, the structure of the sophist and the sophist. This act of thought, the transfer of operations, does not suppose the existence of an ontological ground common to the fisherman and the sophist, uh, to the aspeleutic and the sophistical. In no way does it seek to prove that the fisherman and the sophist result from the imitation of the same shared model through the demiurge. Logical paradigmatism is freed from metaphysical exemplarism. Transfer of the operation is validated by an identity of real operative rapport in the exercise of the aspaleutic and in the exercise of the sophistical. If the operations of the fisherman and the sophist are inscribed in the terms between which these operations unfold are erased, one can abstract from the specification of the system of terms designating the fisherman's conditions of operation or the sophist's conditions of operation. The series of terms that constitutes the sophistical is replaced term for term with the series of terms that constitutes the aspeleutic. Angler replaces sophist and fish replaces rich young people, whereas the operations between these terms remain in full. The operation of seduction and then the operation of profitable capture are the same in the two series. All the intrinsic characteristics of these terms themselves are exempt in the analogical act. And this abstraction, this independence of operations with respect to the terms, is what gives the analogical method its universality. Since the consideration of the terms does not change anything in the nature of the operations, one can pass from the large to the small or the small to the large, such as the method used to define man starting with the city, because the larger logical model is easier to grasp. This method is similar to the one that mathematicians use, which is known as the rule of proportionality. The first operation, quotient of the first pair of terms, A over B, is transferred to the second pair of terms, B over C, or BC. And given B allows us to calculate C. But in the platonic analogical method, not only the operation of measure, but every type of operation is transferred. Um, there are a few th things that are still obscure about this. To me, um, the, that first line about the relating of two operations, it seems like relation in allegmatics is much broader than operation because relation can be the relation between an operation and a structure and also the relation between two operations. Um, and then the, the idea uh, that there isn't an ontological ground common to the fisherman and the sophist I guess I've been thinking of Simon Don recently as kind of a like univocal thinker in this like in this the idea that the operations for these very different structures or activities can be compared would seem to commit him to a kind of uh, I don't know university of operation or the idea that once you eliminate the terms from an operation it can be applied to any sufficiently similar operation no matter what entity or entities are carrying out that operation. So it was surprising, and I think he makes a similar point later on, to see the statement that there isn't a common ground of being between the structures that are being compared in the analogical act.
Yeah, I think those are um, both good points. Um, so yeah, I think you're right that. Um, <coughs> sorry, um, I think you're right that um, relation is broader than um, either operation or structure because we're we're looking at relations between operations or between operations and structures. Um, so relation is um, maybe the the sort of um, overarching term here that he, he doesn't actually give us a, a definition of relation or rapport um, uh, in in this text, but um, his his sort of uh, ontological um, system as, as he sets it out in individuation is um, is supposed to be a, a system in which relation has the status of being. Um, and so I think that uh, principle is at work here as well. Um, so if we start from the assumption or the the axiom that um, relation has the status of being, then we can look at relations between um, between operations or between operations and structures as uh, sort of um, as having their own ontological status as as you know being parts of reality or aspects of reality. Um, I think the yeah the second bit um, I think he's maybe making a somewhat more limited claim he's not saying that there's no um sort of ontological um basis for um that that sort of legitimizes this operation um uh, or this uh active analogy that's passing from the angler to the to the um to the sophist for example um, what he's suggesting here is that we don't need to um we don't need to presuppose some sort of um um, we don't need to presuppose some sort of common uh, basis, like, for example, um, in the sort of platonic image, we don't need to suppose that the angler and the sophist are um, uh, produced on the basis of the same idea, the same form. Uh, we don't need to say that there's some sort of common form that brings about the the being of the angler and of the sophist. Um, so it's, a, I think, a more limited claim in that sense. Um, so it doesn't mean necessarily that there's nothing about like the ontological structure of the world that um, allows for us to to sort of perform this act of analogy. It's just that there's no sort of um, common principle that brings about the being of the angler and the being of the sophist that um, that would legitimize the analogical act. Um, and so I think um, I think this is what he means here when he says that logical paradigmatism is freed from metaphysical exemplarism. So the idea is that we can um, we can use analogies to understand uh, something unknown on the basis of something known without having to presuppose that there is some sort of common form that each of those two entities um, exemplarizes or instantiates. Uh, and so. Um, in the case of the angler and the sophist, for example, um, I mean, in in the dialogue, the sophists, these um, analogies are proposed, I think, in a somewhat um, uh, comical manner. I don't know exactly how seriously we're meant to take them, um, but um, there's this idea that um, what uh, what licenses this operation is, or sorry, what licenses the the act of analogy is the um, common structure of um, sort of capturing uh, something uh, or a common operation of capturing something. Each 
both the angler and the sophist um, capture things in in various ways. Um, and so it's this operation of capturing that uh, licenses the analogy from one to the other. Um, and so there's nothing, there's no particular property of the sophist or of the angler um, that that makes these uh, these uh, this analogy uh, valid. It's only the operations that they perform. Um, so I think that's what he what he's sort of getting at here. Um, um, and so he's specifically talking about intrinsic qualities of these entities. So um, it's it's only by setting the entity into a, a context in which it has um, it can perform operations, um, or, or you can look at the operations that that entity performs. Um, it's only then that you can perform an analogy or an analogical act um, between those two entities. So if you just sort of isolate the angler and, and look at what properties the angler has in uh, intrinsically and, and without looking at the um, operations that the angler performs on fish, for example, then you, you can't... Um, you can't grasp uh, the 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 being of the sophist uh, using the analogy of the being of the angler um, because there's there's no sort of shared properties that account for their uh, the the being of one in terms of the being of the other. So I think that's sort of the the argument here. Um, it has to do with specifically with intrinsic qualities of um, the two entities in question. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I. I can see how that line about the how that line should be read in light of the next few lines. Um, yeah, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, if someone else would like to read from Plato, consequently discovered. I can I can do it. Plato, right? Uh, yeah, from there. Yeah, Plato consequently discovered a way to rationalize the becoming, which after having been the object of Ionian physiological theories, had been abandoned to the domain of deceptive knowledge by the eretics, those are the oraticians of the immutable and of non-temporal being. The analogical method supposes that one can know by defining structures based on the operations that dynamize them, instead of knowing by defining operations based on the structures between between which they are carried, carried out. The logical condition of the exercise of analogy supposes an ontological condition of the rapport between the structure and the operation. For the transfer of logical operation by which a being is thought, uh, parenthesis, from one being to an, an analogous being, parenthesis, close, no, no, no longer use unless the logical operation was modulated by the systematic ensemble of essential operations that constitute the, the being. If it were a simple transfer of modalities of thought by which one contemplates a being, the analogy to another being would be merely an association of ideas. Analogy becomes becomes logical only if the transfer of the logical a logical operation is transfer of an operation that reproduces the operative schema of the of the known being. The analogy between two beings by means of thought is not legitimate unless the thought maintains an analogical rapport with uh, the operative scheme of each of the representative represented beings. Before the knowledge of the analogical rapport between two beings may be established, the knowledge of being must, must already be 
an analogical rapport between the essential operations of the, the spin and the operations of thought that knows it. What thought transfers is the knowledge of an operative schematism. And this knowledge of schematism is itself a schematism that consists in operations of thought. Analogical thought establishes a relation between two terms because thought is mediation between two terms with which separately it has an immediate rapport. This mediation mediation consists of two isolated mediations. Thought becomes the operative metaxu, metasu of beings without ontological rapport since they are not part of the same natural system of existence. Continue or stop? Uh, yeah, you can continue. Thanks. Uh, one question about the parenthesis. When I read like the part uh, in uh, between the parenthesis, should I say a parenthesis and a close parenthesis or something like that? I don't think that's necessary. I think you can just. Read I can it. just continue to read, right? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. It should therefore be noted that analogical thought is a thought that arises from the identities of rapport, not from the reports of the of identity. But it must be specified these identities of reports are identities of operative reports, not identities of a structure. Reports. This is how the opposition between analogy and uh, resemblance is revealed. Resemblance consists of structural reports. Pseudo scientific thought mainly utilizes resemblance and sometimes even the resemblance of vocabulary, but it does not make use of analogy. Consequently, pseudo scientific thought formulates a veritable profusion of images and keywords, wave, radiation. These words only cover over confused images that can barely guarantee an effective resemblance between the propagation of mechanical shock and a fluid that that of an electromagnetic field without physical support. Only recently have we been able to note the confusion between two neighboring consonances that of ser uh, servo mechanism. Is that of the brain in the sense that the brain can be called the center of autopiloting or self-regulation. The meaning of the slave and the meaning of the control panel are mixed together in the effective resemblance of everything on the cybernetic order, including the use of relays and vacuum tubes or thyrotrons. Conversely, the use of analogy begins with the science. Thus, Fresnel Fresnel actually utilizes the analogical method when he de defined the, the rules of the propagation of light. Insofar, insofar as one wanted to conceive the resemblance between the propagation of light and the propagation of sound, one became paralyzed by the resemblance between the light wave and the sound wave. If a structure identity between the light wave and the sound wave is supposed, one is forced to arrange the elongation of sonic vibrations and of luminous, luminous, luminous waves in an identical fashion. On the contrary, Fresnel's genius consists in abandoning resemblance for analogy, forging a different structure of the light wave and the sound wave. He represents the light wave as having an elongation perpendicular to the direction of the pro propagation and leaves to the sound wave its longitudinal elongation parallel to the direction of the displacement. From then on, analogy appears. Between these different, different structural terms, the operations are the same. The combination of waves, whether they be light or sound, occurs in the same way in the case sound waves as in that of light waves. A certain structural results are different. 
namely those where the structure characteristic of elongation intervenes with respect to the direction of displacement. The structure results are the same when the, when the structure difference does not intervene. The phenomenon of diffraction is different, but that of stationary waves is identical. Stop here, right? Yeah, that's a good place to stop. Thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, so there's a few different uh, things going on in this bit. Maybe it was one thing that I'll, I'll point out um, is uh, uh, not, not exactly a translation issue, but it would have been helpful to have a note here. Um, so right at the bottom of 666 to 667, um, where he talks about, um, he says, only recently have we been able to note the confusion between two neighboring consonances, that of servo mechanism and that of the brain. So here um, he's pointing out, um, he's pointing out um, a similarity in the French words, which doesn't exist in English, unfortunately. Um, so servo mechanism is servo uh, mechanisme. Um, and then brain in French is cerveau. Um, so there's a, a resemblance between uh, cerveau mechanisme and, and cerveau, um, but the resemblance is completely um, accidental. There's no sort of conceptual connection between the two. So that's that's what Simon is pointing out here. So it uh, it doesn't really come across in English because there's no resemblance between the words in English. Um, so that's um, that's what that bit is about. And he's um, he uses this example. Um, as a, an instance of um, uh, pseudo-scientific thought or of um, not yet scientific thought that it focuses on resemblances between, well, in this case, just resemblances between words, but um, um, in general focuses on resemblances between entities or different um, types of entities, as opposed to um, looking at uh, analogies between different structural domains. Uh, and so then the other example that he talks about is um, the relationship between sound waves and light waves. Um, and so the the sort of pseudo-scientific or, or not quite scientific um, uh, approach to um, understanding light waves in terms of sound waves was to see them as similar to each other or resembling each other. Um, so light waves or light is to be understood as consisting of waves that are similar to sound waves. Um, and, uh, you know, this leads to certain problems, uh, which uh, Fresnel um, uh, resolved by um, proposing that light, um, light waves have uh, a, um, a, a transverse um, direction of propagation. So, um, whereas sound waves, um, uh, sound waves, the the waves are um, parallel to the direction of propagation. So we can think of a, a wave, like if you think of your, your sort of standard sine wave um, form, the wave structure is, uh, is uh, in the same direction as the actual uh, propagation of the sound wave. Whereas light waves, um, as, as Fresnel had um, proposed, are... Um, the the wave structure is uh, perpendicular to the direction of propagation, uh, so this is a, a difference. There, there's a, a non-resemblance between uh, sound waves and light waves, but um, this allows us to pass. Once you posit this difference, or once you recognize this difference, it allows you to pass from the the realm of resemblance to the realm of analogy, uh, and so now you actually have a a real grasp of um, the phenomenon of uh, uh, light waves in a way that you only had a sort of vague, um, uh, sort of a, a vague apprehension of before. 
One one difficulty I had with this section is that it seems like there are modes of knowing the world that are the comparison of structures, which is basically how he defines resemblance, uh, identities of structural rapport, rapports. Um, for instance, like a map, um, which involves a structural rapport between the elements of the map and the elements of the territory that it maps, or, you know, like models of knowledge that are similar to maps, like uh, images of, of a nebula from... Uh, the Hubble um, Space Telescope, for instance. And then, relatedly, I guess it seems like there are also, well, I guess one of the, it seems like this is, this Allagmatics piece is Simon Dunn's, it seems to me like it's as close as he gets to talking about his epistemology. But um, in light of that, this book that I'm reading on, um, scientific perspectivism, which goes into great detail on various uh, similarities between scientific models in the world. It seems like the way in which many of these models are made are not, is not analogical in the sense that it doesn't follow sort of the, the genesis or the functioning of the object to be known um, with a sort of parallel process in the mode of knowing, I guess the process in the, the mode of recording in the instrument and the process of the genesis of the object or the functioning of the object are extremely different. And I don't think that this analogical comparison of operations would necessarily capture that, those methods of obtaining knowledge. I don't know if there is like an answer to, to those issues, but they're just things that I was thinking about when reading through this again. Yeah, I think the the map example is an interesting one because um, so yeah, at some level, of course, there is a resemblance between uh, a map and the territory that it maps, um, and that's sort of what it um, you know what makes a map good. And and if the map doesn't resemble the territory, then you say there's a, a you know a mistake in the map. Um, but there's also maybe at a more um, a more precise or uh, a more um, uh, I don't know what word to use here, but like a, a more difficult level, um, there's a sort of, um, you know, the resemblance is um, a sort of secondary effect, I think, because, you know, for one thing, of course, the the map is two-dimensional, whereas the world that you're mapping is three-dimensional. So there's already a, a you know, big um, um, sort of uh, difference between the two. Um, and then that fact, the, the reduction of dimension brings about a whole series of problems in cartography related to the projection, um, how you take a spherical body right. and turn it into a, a flat map. Um, there's, there's all kinds of um, mathematical uh, problems that brings up and you have to sort of make a decision about what properties you want to preserve. So you can, um, uh, so some of the earlier um, maps uh, use the Mercator projection, which preserves angles, and so this is useful if you're um, if you're navigating a ship. You can look at the map and measure the angle between uh, a line that goes to port A and, and a line that goes to port B, and you can um, use that angle to direct your ship to uh, one of those ports. Um, and uh, but what the Mercator projection does not preserve is areas, and um, so this is sort of famously the case that. Um, it makes the northern hemisphere much bigger than, uh, or sorry, it makes the uh, the polar regions and um, regions closer to the poles bigger 
than uh, regions closer to the equator. So if you look at a, a Mercator projection, it makes Greenland like almost the same size as Africa, whereas Africa is actually much bigger than uh, than Greenland. Um, and so you have other projections that that do preserve area, but they don't preserve angle. Um, so the the sort of resemblance is a I, I think a secondary effect of um, preserving certain operations. So if you if you're preserving angles, you're preserving directions of navigation. If you're preserving areas, you're preserving um, I don't know like land um, use or something like that. Like you you're you have to make a decision about which aspects of the the surface of the earth you want to um, capture in your map and uh, you necessarily have to sacrifice certain other aspects. So uh, I think the uh, this relationship between the aspects that you capture and the ones that you um, you lose, I think um, is probably uh, closer to what Simondo has in mind when he's talking about analogy than it is to uh, a resemblance. Um, and then the to the extent that there is a resemblance between a map and the territory, I think that uh, resemblance is probably a secondary effect of the analogy of um, you know capturing angles or or preserving angles or whichever property it is that you uh, you want to capture. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, actually, the book I'm reading also talks about the the map problem. Um, but I I am having trouble seeing the sort of the structural dissymmetry as being kind of compensated by like an operational symmetry. Like I don't, I mean, I, I see how like you would use the map to navigate um, if you use the Mercator projection, but I, it seems like he's saying that the, it, it's not like just a sort of uh, consideration of how the knowledge is going to be used, but an actual sort of operational symmetry between the the known object and then the the model or the representation of the object or or what is being the i guess the uh unknown object that the original operation is being used to clarify yeah i think here maybe we can think about how he he introduces um he, he goes through this pretty quickly and, and not in maybe as much detail as we might like but he talks about how um the analogy between two objects is only possible to, you know, entities outside of my thought is only possible because the relationship between um, my thought and each of those objects is itself analogical. Um, so um, I, I grasp the structure or I shouldn't say structure, um, the makeup, I guess, of an entity, um, you know, the, the way that it, uh, the being of an entity um, I grasp it by um, uh, using some sort of analogical relation between my own thought and the operations of my thought and the operations that make up that entity and the structures of that entity. Um, uh, so in the case of the um, mapping operation, um, there we have uh, you know the globe with all its um, continents and islands and so on um, is an entity outside of me that I want to... Um, gain some knowledge of. Uh, and to do that, I have to perform all sorts of operations of, you know, measuring and um, determining angles and, and areas and so on um, inside my thought or, you know, in my thought plus instruments. Um, I have to perform all sorts of intellectual operations to um, grasp the entity that I'm interested in. 
Uh, and so it's in that sense that um, there's a, a sort of analogical grasp of the um, of the being of the entity that I'm interested in. Uh, and so this it's this um, analogical grasp of the being of that entity that that serves as sort of the the basis for the way that I can then use my knowledge uh, or someone else can come along and look at the map that I've made um, using my analogical operations of thought. Uh, they can take that map and use it to gain knowledge about the structure of the globe. Um, and uh, and so it's it's only because I um, started from an analogical grasp of the entity uh, of the earth uh, that someone else can use the product of my thought, the the map that I've drawn to gain knowledge about the the earth um, by using the, another anal analogical act. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's that um, sort of fundamental analogical relationship between between thought and the object of thought that is um, allowing for us to um, to treat uh, anal the act of analogy as uh, a legitimate form of inference here. Uh, can I ask a question? It's like, yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, thank you. Uh, the very first one is like uh, uh, rapport and the schema. So the part I read, uh, the first part is analogical rapport with the operative schema of each of representative beings, such and such. The rapport comes a lot here. As far as I understand, for me, it's, it sounds like a relation, rapport here, because like something different makes some kind of relation here. That's, what I, I, that, that's kind of a question. The schema here, for me, is more like information. Like, can I think, think of that way? That's the first question. And the second question is like, uh, if you go down a little bit, <clears throat> you can see the operative metathu, uh, metathu, something like that, of beings. So um, this mediation consists of two isolated immediations through thought to become the operative metathu of beings without ontological rapport. So is it some kind of uh, produce product like uh, ontogenesis or a product of this kind of older mechanism? Things like that. So I would like to know the nature or identity of metathu here. And then third one is like, oh, while you are talking about the analogy and resemblance with the map and uh, territory, I thought of like a biological terms like analogous organ and homologous organ. So um, like uh, regarding function and the structure or shape, um, we can think of, you know, the, the biological and analogous organ is more like... The, the origin is different, but the shape is the same, like the wings, something like that, right? And then uh, on the other hand, like homologous organ, as you know, like um, the origin is the same, but the, the it looks different, something like that. So uh, just reading like a Fresnel's the, the, the uh, theory, idea about the light wave and the sound wave, I thought that difference between like the difference of uh, how to function. So I, I thought of that, that one is it kind of proper, proper thinking? Like when I read that one, thinking about the biological ideas that way. Yeah, I think that's a good example actually. But the the trick here is that um, what in biology we call analogous organs are um, are what Simon Don is going to call a resemblance, and then uh, homology between uh, organs is is what Simon Don calls analogy. So that's sort of a, a tricky point of terminology. Um, but yes, yeah, so um, for those who may not be familiar with with that distinction, so um, 
um, as Oli mentioned, uh, like wings would be analogous organs between say um, a bird and a bat. Um, so they, um, you know, a bird and a bat have, um, have similar structures in their body, um, namely wings, and they, they both um, serve the function of, of uh, bringing about flight. Um, so they, they, they resemble each other. Um, but if you look at the sort of more detail or, or like a, a closer look at the structure, they're actually not that close to each other um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the types of bones in a bat's wing are, are not similar to the type of bones in a, a bird's wing, uh, for example. Um, and so the reason for this is because the, the evolutionary history is completely different. Um, the, uh, uh, a bat's wing uh, actually corresponds to human, a human hand, uh, and it's as if the skin sort of grew between all the fingers of a human hand, and, and that's what a bat's wing looks like, whereas a bird's wing corresponds to the human arm. Um, and so this, um, this relationship between organs is, is what's called homology. So we, you look at not you know, what the organs look like now, but what sort of evolutionary history they have. Um, and so a bird's wing and a human arm, even though they look very different and they have very different functions in terms of the life of uh, uh, these organisms now, um, they, they have a common evolutionary origin. So you can look at each of the bones in a human arm, and you can sort of um, uh, map it onto uh, bones in a bird's wing. Um, uh, and um, yeah, so this this relation of homology is, is closer to what Simondon is calling analogy here, um, whereas the analogical relationship is closer to what he's calling resemblance. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and then also, so you brought up this bit about mediation and the, the mitaksu. Um, I think that's a Again, another point where Simondon just sort of um, introduces these uh, these concepts and and doesn't really go into any detail um, about um, you know how we're supposed to understand them. But um, yeah, so mediation is um, a term that he doesn't use a lot in Volume One, um, to my recollection. Um, but it, we, I think we can see it as um, sort of one of the key principles of his. Uh, of his thought in the sense that um, we've talked about this before, how he always, whenever there's a sort of conceptual opposition between two terms, um, you know, body and mind, for example, he always wants to um, find a middle point um, out of which those two terms can be seen to arise through a, a process of ontogenesis. Um, and I think we can see this as a, a kind of mediation. So we, we grasp, um, body and mind or form and matter or whichever pair of terms we grasp them not by sort of an immediate acquaintance with them but through the mediation of this uh, ontogenetic process um, and so i think that um, notion of mediation that he uses here even though it's it's not a term that comes up a lot in volume one i think it's a, a concept that we can see um, operating in uh, in a, a number of different points in that text um, and so, yeah, the, the mitaksu here is, um, so the, the actual sort of literal meaning of, of mitaksu is between. Um, so it, it's the between, uh, so it's something that is between um, uh, two other entities. Um, um, and here, what he's talking about is how analogical thought in particular operates as a mediation um, between, uh, between two entities, like the angler and the sophist. So there might not be 
any sort of um, uh, intrinsic uh, resemblance between the angler and the sophist. So if you look at the angler's properties and the sophist properties, there might not be anything that they share, um, uh, you know, besides the sort of general properties of being a human or, or something like that. Um, um, but um, it's through the act of analogy that you um, mediate between one and the other, or you use one to understand the other. Uh, and so it's in this sense that uh, thought, analogical thought is the mitaksu, the between that, uh, that mediates between the angler and the sophist or between the known entity and the unknown entity. Oh, thank you. That helps a lot. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, 61, do you have a mic today or, or do you want to read? Or if not, I can read. Oh. Hey, sorry. Um... I'm kind of half multi. What page? Let me switch. Uh, so we are on page 667. We're at such the legitimacy. 20 seconds. Yeah, sure. Or if you want, I can read this, this bit and then you can read the next one. No, I got it. Just give me Sure. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. And we're at such. Yes. Okay, sorry. No coffee yet today. Uh, such is the legitimacy of the analogical method. Yet every theory of knowledge supposes a theory of being. The analogical method is valid if it concerns a world where beings are defined by their operations and not by their structures, by what they do and not by what they are. If a being is what it does, if it is not independent from what it does, the analogical method can be applied without reservation. Conversely, if a being is defined by its structure and by its, by its operations equally, analogical thought cannot fully access the being's reality. Ultimately, if structure is what is primordial, and not operation, then the analogical method loses its profound meaning and can only play a pedagogical or heuristic role. The first question of the theory of knowledge is therefore metaphysical. What is the relation of operation and of structure in being? If the answer is structure, we end up with the phenomen phenomenalist objectivism of Kant and Comte. Auguste Comte, not, is it, or it's not Comte, but that's the only way I can say it, and it doesn't sound like Kant, sorry. Just Kant, right? It's Kant and Comte. Is that yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's good. <clears throat> knowledge then necessarily remains relative and becomes indefinitely extensible through scientific progress. On the contrary, if the answer is operation, not structure, we end up with a dynamic intuitionism of Bergson. Knowledge is absolute and immediate, but does not necessarily reach all objects. The inert term, like matter, can only be known as a degradation of vital dynamism, and the knowledge of the static is an intuition that degrades and disintegrates. Furthermore, if the dynamic term can be an object of intuition, the, ve the very ruptures or limits of this dynamism are difficult to know through intuition. Paradoxically, science becomes the pure pragmatism of knowledge, a recipe for acting. This method partially negates itself because starting with a primacy of operation, it can no longer recognize the operative value of scientific knowledge or instead makes use of its operative destiny to brand knowledge as utilitarian. However, utility characterizes an operative congruence. Beginning with pragmatism, Bergson sublimated this operative inspiration of the theory of knowledge in order to privilege a pure operation, i.e. disinterested contemplative intuition, metaphysical intuition. Having introduced dualism into the very world of the operation, by distinguishing between utilitarian operation and disinterested contemplative operation, this spirituality, rediscovered in the disinterested operation, turns back towards the materiality of the interested operation in order to judge it, condemn it, and reduce it to an inferior type of slavery. 
However, just like the invasion of positivist rationalism by principles that are irreducible to phenomenal laws, such as thermodynamics, defines them or biology utilizes them, thereby leading to the conception of the existence of two types of structure of unequal value, second principle of thermodynamics or Claude Bernard's principle of the organizing idea, i.e. the hierarchizing structure and the structure term of the law relation. In Bergsonian knowledge, this dialectic of the separation of two forms of intuition reveals the impossibility of absolutely privileging the structure or the operation. An epistemological monism of structure or operation does not remain true to itself and recreates over the course of its development the term that it had initially excluded. Structural positivism reintroduces the notion of hierarchy, whether vital or energetic, and thus reintroduces a pure dynamism independent of all structure, since it produces structure. Bergsonian intuitionism distinguishes the pure operation, philosophical intuition, from interested materializing, spatializing, and utilitarian thought, i.e., thought attached to artificial or natural structures. Vulgar knowledge is a search for the identical throughout the endless fluidity of becoming, a refusal of movement on behalf of the static. To act, to operate, becomes synonymous with spatializing, immobilizing, structuring. Utilitarian perception abstracts and conceptualizes. The operative dynamism of life produces a systematics of immobility. Via dynamism, structure is reintroduced into knowledge as a dishonored, dismissed, and second-class intuition. The aristocratism of pure intuition can do nothing against this formation of a lower class. The former can only scorn the latter, neither nullifying nor even replacing it. The aristocratism of pure intuition cannot resolve the social problem of knowledge, and it cannot even pose this problem. In the same way, it consequently cannot discover the legitimate usage of the analogical method. It remains the deployment of metaphor, which presents itself as expression, but not as definition. Right. There's uh, a lot going on in this, uh, in this bit. Um, and yeah, so I think we here again have, uh, as Angus has pointed out in the chat, we have some um, hesitation uh, or tension on Simon Do's part in terms of um, the domain of validity of analogical thinking. Um, so we, uh, throughout volume one, we saw that, um, uh, you know, he, he takes analogy to be one of the sort of central principles of his philosophical method. Um, but he also here, um, he, he recognizes that, um, analogy would only be sort of universally valid or, um, extend to all of being, if um, we could treat being as um, coextensive with action or with operation. Um, so it's only if operation exhausts being or if there's nothing more to being than operation that you can use analogy to grasp every element of being or every aspect of being. Uh, and on the other hand, if there is some aspect of reality that is not operation or that is not um, doesn't fall under the concept of operation, then we end up uh, with something that um, analogy can't grasp. Uh, and um, he he gives here um, a pretty dense, um, but I think very interesting argument about um, um, what connection there is between um, operation and uh, and structure in terms of in our theory of knowledge. Um, so we, um, we want to know, um, first whether there is, uh, something that is not 
um, operation, uh, so something that would not be graspable by the analogical method. And then if there is, then what is the relationship between that structure and that operation? Um, and then, so the two possible answers would be first that the relation between um, structure and operation is itself a structure. It's um, it's something uh, uh, that can be sort of grasped in terms of um, composition of entities or um, the makeup of entities. And uh, Simon Don, um, in a pretty uh, quick way here, he identifies this with um, uh, Kantian and Kantian um, um, phenomenalism. Um, he, he goes into more detail about this argument in uh, one of the texts in uh, on philosophy. Um, but the idea here is that um, um, in these uh, sort of theories of knowledge, we only ever grasp uh, appearances. We only have um, knowledge of appearances and we, we don't have knowledge of things as they are in themselves. And um, um, so knowledge is relative, um, but it's indefinitely extensible in the sense that we can always have more and more knowledge of appearances. We can have better um, scientific grasp of, uh, of the appearances. Um, but yeah, so this, uh, this is the phenomenalist objectivism. This is the one side where you start from treating um, the relationship between structure and operation as itself a structure. Uh, then the other side is if you say that the relationship between, um, between um, uh, operation and structure is an operation, uh, and so he identifies this with Bergson's, um, what he calls dynamic intuitionism. So for Bergson, we have um, this intuitive knowledge uh, or we have this intuitive access to um, um, duration um, and um, it's only um, in a sort of secondary sense that we have access to um, uh, structure, to you know, objects and um, the makeup of uh, the layout of objects in space, for example. Um, and um, yeah, so here he, he goes through, again, in a pretty dense way, um, what he sees as the limit of um, um, uh, about Bergson, um, uh, the, the, the sort of dynamic intuitionism, um, in the sense that for Bergson, um, the uh, scientific knowledge itself ends up becoming uh, something that is not really graspable. Um, you Scientific knowledge is sort of reduced for Bergson to a knowledge of structures, which is um, something that is sort of inherently um, un, uh, unattainable. Um, it's, uh, if, if our knowledge is always or is essentially or primarily um, this intuitive access to duration, then uh, having a knowledge of structures uh, is something that can only be a sort of second class knowledge or um, not really knowledge. So Bergson has these um, um, uh, instances where he sort of compares the um, uh, scientific um, depiction of entities in space with, uh, he, he takes this to be a sort of pragmatic um, uh, kind of knowledge. So it, it's, we, we want to know you know, where entities are located basically so that we can find them and, and use them for our own purposes. Whereas um, the, um, the uh, 
uh, intuition of duration is something that is not um, utilitarian in that sense. So it's something that we um, have this sort of contemplative um, or purely um, uh, purely theoretical, I guess, attitude towards in the sense that we we grasp um, duration not with the goal of uh, you know uh, achieving a certain end, um, but for the sake of uh, for its own sake, essentially. Um, and and so this opposition between like the true knowledge or the contemplative knowledge or the sort of first class knowledge of uh, of duration, and then the second class knowledge or the um, not quite knowledge or utilitarian sort of knowledge of um, the layout of objects in space. Um, th this opposition, uh, Simon Do argues here, is a, a kind of um, um, uh, limit point of this. Um, uh, dynamical intuitionism in Bergson. So it's, uh, it's a kind of uh, uh, impossibility for Bergson to grasp um, both kinds of knowledge or, or both realms of knowledge as having equal value or as, uh, um, uh, or um, to put it another way, the, the operation, um, the, this operation or this grasp of operation itself leaves behind a kind of residue that is the structure, the grasp of structure. Um, and, and so it's in this sense that um, uh, Simon Don sees uh, this dynamical intuitionism as being, uh, in a sense, self-undermining. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the, um, the next page. Um, I know, Angus, you have to leave um, you know, pretty soon, but uh, I think we can try to finish this text. Um, and uh, we only have uh, about a page or page and a half left, so let's um, push through and then... Uh, uh, pick up from next time. That sounds great. I will catch up on the recording. Um, thanks, Nan. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thanks. See you. Okay. Um, so I will um, read the next page. The duty of allegmatic epistemology is to determine the veritable relation between structure and operation in being, and therefore to organize the rigorous and legitimate rapport between the structural knowledge and operative knowledge of a being between analytical science and analogical science. Structural analytical science supposes that a whole is reducible to the sum of its parts or to the combination of its elements. Analogical science, on the contrary, supposes that the whole is primordial and expresses itself through its operation, which is a holistic functioning. Analogical science establishes equivalences between operations, i.e. holistic functionings. To wonder what the being is is to wonder how the functioning, the holistic schematism of a being, and the structure, the analytical systematic of this being, articulate themselves. Chronological schematism and the spatial systematic are organized together in the being. Their union creates individuality insofar as the individual is a domain of reciprocal convertibility of operation into structure and of structure into operation. The individual is the unity of the being grasped prior to any distinction or opposition of operation and structure. Um, the individual is that in which an operation can be reconverted into a structure and the structure into an operation. It is the being prior to any knowledge or any action. It is the milieu of the allegmatic act. Allegmatic theory is the study of the individual being. It organizes and defines the relation of the theory of operations, applied cybernetics, and the theory of structures, analytical and deterministic science. Allegmatic theory has a place in the theory of knowledge as well as in the theory of values. It is axiontological, for it grasps the reciprocity of axiological dynamism and of ontological structures. It grasps the being not outside space and time, but prior to the division into spatial, systematic, and temporal schematism. The knowledge of the relation between operation and structure is established by a mediation between the temporal schematism and the spatial systematic in the individual. This mediation, this mutual condition, 
this reality not yet deployed into schematism and systematic into operation and structure can be called internal tension, supersaturation, or incompatibility. The individual is tension, supersaturation, incompatibility. This tension, supersaturation, and incompatibility develops into operation and structure, into the operation of a structure, such that we must always consider the operation structure coupled that is allegmatically equivalent to the tension, supersaturation, and incompatibility of an individual. There are two states of the individual, the unified syncretic state, i.e. the state of tension, and the analytic state, i.e. the state of distinction between operation and structure. The act is the change of the individual state. Uh, okay, let's stop here um, because this is all, you know, fairly dense. Uh, um, yeah, 61 has posted a, a nice chart about um, the operation of uh, structure or the relation of operation and structure in being. Did you make this, 61? Yeah, I just made a second. Oh, yeah. Okay, that, that's uh, very helpful. It's, um, it's yeah, just a nice um, sort of uh, overview of what the distinction is between the two. Um, yeah, so... As we might expect from Simon Dong, he wants to um, overcome the opposition between uh, the phenomenalist uh, objectivism of Kant and Kant um, and the dynamic intuitionism of Bergson. So he wants to um, overcome this opposition between the, the one um, answer to the question of what the relation is between operation and structure um, that says it's a structure, and then the other answer that says the relation between operation and structure is an operation. So he's, he wants to get beyond this opposition and grasp something that is neither structure nor operation um, that is sort of prior to the separation between structure and operation and that um, out of which structure and operation will be um, developed. And so again, we can, I think we can um, point back to his analysis of the cogito earlier in this text um, as being this sort of immediate reciprocity of structure and operation. So I think it's that type of, um, uh, uh, I don't know, I want to call it an act, but it's uh, a kind of act and structure, it's an operation and structure at the same time. It's immediately one and the other. Um, so uh, it's this kind of uh, thought that is prior to the opposition between structure and operation that he wants us to uh, take as the the most fundamental, and and here we see he um, sort of brings us back to the notion of the individual that he sort of um, stepped away from at the beginning of the text, um, and so this is uh, sort of what I was describing earlier in terms of the strategy of like ascending to the more abstract level to redescend to the more concrete level and sort of try to reframe our understanding of the concrete in terms of that. Uh, more abstract level that we uh, ascended to earlier. Um, so um, yeah, so allegmatic theory is the study of the individual being. So it's um, um, it's a study of the convertibility of operation and structure um, between each other. So it's only insofar as an there's only an individual or an entity is only an individual insofar as you can grasp it in terms of um, this. Um, level of reality or level of thought that is prior to structure and operation. Um, and so this is sort of the, the fundamental um, level at which allegmatic thought operates. It's where um, being uh, where being is understood as this immediate convertibility of structure and operation. Um, and so this is um, where allegmatics or the theory of allegmatics um, sort of links up to the whole account of individuation in uh, volume one of the book. 
Okay, um, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, so if someone else could pick up from there are two parts to allegmatics um, and then read to the end of the, the text. Ali, I think it's your turn if, uh, if you're um, ready. Yeah, yeah I, I, I can do it. There are two parts of allegmatics. One, the theory of a passage from the syncretic state to the analytic state. Two, the theory of a passage from the analytic state to, to the syncretic state. Every act of the first type is equivalent to an act of a second type. The first type of act can be called crystallization, and the second type can be called modulation. We will hold as a postulate that every crystallization is equivalent to an inverted modulation, and vice versa. Starting with the syncretic individuality, crystallization is the act that transforms the latter into an analytic individuality, which consists of a spatial structure, topology of interiority, exteriority, first birth of a limit, organized and homogeneous form, the milieu that has become amorphous, stable, heterogeneity, guaranteed by the, by the topological limit, and, a, and of an operative function that reveals itself as an activity organized by an, an energetic temporal schematism. Crystallization replaces the syncretic state of the individuating individual with the analytic state of the individual individuated individual, which is characterized in particular by the mutual authority of the structural form and of the material milieu in which the latter exists. Conversely, modulation forges the synthesis of structure and operation of, by organizing a temporal operation according to a morphological structure. The force of an operation is informed here by a signal form that guides this force. Every demodulation is the analysis of this syncretic complex of form and force. Every demodulation of detection separating the form from the force that informs is a crystallization. Demodulation can only occur if the uh, condition of tension, supersaturation, and incompatibility is fulfilled. If not, the modulated force remains an individuating individual without ever being analyzed into structure and operation. Continue. Continue. Yes, oh, uh, to yeah. the end of this. Yeah, right, thanks. Right. So there are a certain number of intuitions at the basis of every theory. He will, will reflect on the two domains within which the two basic intuitions, whose symmetry we are portraying, originate. The first is the physical chemistry, with a study of the conditions of the synthesis of crystals, supersaturated or supercooled super cooled solutions, and the study of epitoxy. The second is information theory, and in particular, in particular, the theory of the relation between the signal, the power supply, and the structure of the modulator in the different types of modulators that the te techniques of transmission theoretically studies. The latter study involves the reciprocal, i.e. the theory of demodulation, which is also called the de detection, provided that one understands by this term that just a rectification rectifier, applied to modulated alternating current, but also the set of selective filtrations due to which the modulating form or forms are separated from the modulated energy and are rediscovered in the state of pure signal. After having contemplated the simple modulator, the study will have to describe the complex modulator or intermodulator, in which the power uh, supply has already received a preliminary modulation and then receives a second modulation. We will also have to describe the complex mod uh, demodulator in which several successive detections are effectuated. 
And so far as the energetic residue of previous stimulation, the modulation takes on the value of modulated energy for the next demodulation. At the end of this twofold study, the philosophical notion of causality uh, will be enriched, and the notion of the individual will be def defined. And we will need to specify the way the act of crystallization and the act of modulation are linked in the becoming of physical, biological, psychological, social systems. This will be the role of allegomatic hypothesis concerning the nature of becoming. Wow, important ideas are bombarded here. Important ideas are bombarded here. Yeah, it's just like basically a program for all of philosophy. Um, yeah, not much. Um, yeah, so again, there's a lot going on in this you know, page or so that we just read. Um, so um, um, he's going, he, he talks about the, so first he talks about the um, syncretic state and the analytic state. So syncretic state is the state before um, the distinction between operation and structure. And then analytic state is the state after that distinction between operation and structure um, is, is realized. And so he wants to, he's going to say that, um, or he's going to pause it as his um, use of, of these terms. He's going to say that every passage from a syncretic state to an analytic state is a crystallization, is a, yes, a crystallization. Um, and then every passage from um, uh, an analytic state to a syncretic state is a modulation. Um, and he, postulates here that these two processes are inverse of each other. So you can sort of do one and then do the other and return to where you started. Um, and um, so crystallization would be starting with um, the, so in the sort of physical sense, the actual um, physical process of crystallization, you start with the supersaturated um, solution and then um, and so this is a sort of amorphous um, substance, uh, and uh, and then out of this amorphous substance, you um, you get something in which you have an opposition between structure and operation. So you have a, a crystal, which is a, a structure, and then you have the growth of the crystal, which is its, its operation. Um, and um, so here we have um, he he also um, he uses the terms here individuating individual and individuated individual um so here again we should be um thinking of the passage in uh volume one where he talks about doubting doubt and doubted doubt uh and then we should also be thinking of the spinozistic distinction between natura naturata and natura naturans um so we have this um distinction between individuating individual. Uh, so this is the syncretic state of the individual and then the individuated individual, which is the analytic state. Um, so um, yeah, he just sort of introduces these terms kind of in passing here, but um, I think it's, those terms are, are very important that ing ed um, distinction is, uh, is very important for his thought. Um, um, and then we have, um, let's see, what else? Yeah, so then he he talks about the sort of um, basis of this theory in in physical chemistry uh, and information theory as the two um, the two sides or the two physical sciences uh, or the two sciences in general that uh, he takes as his 
uh, sort of starting points out of out of which he's making this analogy with other aspects of uh, of being, and then he gives us this sort of you know in a couple paragraphs he gives us this huge um, project which I think we can to some extent say was realized in individuation um, of using this kind of um, uh, schema of the uh, syncretic to analytic and the analytic to syncretic transformations as a a kind of schema for understanding individuation and all sorts of different domains, physical, vital, psychical, and social. Uh, so no uh, questions or comments about that last bit? No, I'm I'm always just super overwhelmed by everything that I'm just saying. So I'm I'm trying to soak in as much as I'm able to. Yeah, this is, this is a text that I think you have to read multiple times because each paragraph has like 20 new ideas introduced. And uh, yeah, so there's like... So much going on in every line of this text, um, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's it's one of his more difficult and dense texts, but it's it's a very um, rich text as well. I think. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Yeah. I I also need like a time to digest. It's like a full of uh, like a rich rich food, like really nice actually. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. So yeah, maybe we can take some time to digest, and then we can talk about it a little bit more next week. Um, and I think, if I am not mistaken, I think the yeah the texts are in a different order. So yeah, that we have we still have form information and potentials um, to go through. So we actually um, I can't remember if either or both of you were there when we did this, but we we actually read this text um, like I don't know exactly how long over a year ago when we started reading individuation or just before we started individuation. Um, yeah, I kind of remember this. I think I think. Yeah, so it was um, translated separately, and um, it also had the um, discussion section after. So this was um, a talk that Simon Don gave at the um, uh, French Society for Philosophy, uh, and they always published like the actual communication, the the talk itself, and then the discussion afterwards. So the one we read had both the the text and the discussion, but this one just has the text. Um, but I think it would be useful to, um, you know, come back to this text after having read the, uh, the whole book and, and have like a, a different um, sort of um, appreciation of the text itself. This okay. is the one with the discussion, I think, that I posted. I believe right. this is the discussion yeah. part. Okay. Um, so thanks for coming out. We can, uh, you know, talk about the, you know, thoughts about um, allegmatics next time as well. And, uh, and then we can go on to form information potentials, which will probably take a couple of weeks to get through.